When does accountability work? That is the big question for schools, for children. And we're here this week with HGSC Associate Professor David Deming, who's the co-author of a recently published Education Next article looking at a Texas system that had mixed effects on college graduation rates and future earnings. Professor Deming, welcome to today's EdCast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today, Matt. Thank you for having me. So let's just jump right in. The origins of the research here, the context and the motivation for the work. Sure. So I guess, you know, it's um, I started this study a few years ago, and the thing that really motivated uh, me and my co-authors, I should mention them, Sandy Jenks, Sarah Cahotis, Jennifer Jennings, um, the, the, the thing that really motivated us to look at this was um, that on the one hand, you have some pretty vocal proponents of school accountability and high-stakes testing talking about big benefits in terms of student test scores. You know, this was done in Texas, the so-called Texas miracle, where we saw really large increases in, in pass rates for students on the high-stakes test. And then on the, on the one hand, so you've got a lot of positive news for, in terms of, you know, big test score gains in schools and in districts and in states that adopted these high-stakes accountability policies. And then on the other hand, you've got some very vocal critics of school accountability um, and a large number of studies essentially showing what I'd call strategic responses to accountability. So that ranges from, um, you know, um, putting kids in, um, in you know, non-tested subjects or grades, you know, taking your best teachers and putting them in the high-stakes high subjects, um, to strategically classifying students as eligible for special education so they don't have to take the test, to making school lunches more nutritious on the day of the test. And, and, and of course, there have been some um, outright cheating scandals in places like Atlanta. And so, you know, you've got this kind of polarized debate around school accountability. And, and what we really wanted to do was to, was to um, try to answer a, a bottom line policy question about school accountability by saying, look, if you were in a school that faced a lot of pressure to raise test scores, we're not just going to look at your test scores. We're going to look at, you know, s several years later, were you more li if you were in that school and in that year where they faced a lot of pressure, were you more likely to go to college, to graduate from college, to have higher earnings in your mid-20s um, as sort of a bottom line test of whether school accountability is helping or harming kids net of all the things that are going on. So that was, that was the motivation for the study. And the sort of implications this has on broad policies is important with NCLB and the reauthorization, ESEA. Tell us a little bit about who you hope learns from this study and what they're supposed to do with these learnings. Sure. So I think one important thing to say, Matt, about Texas is that it was in many ways, um, you know, the ancestor of No Child Left Behind. This was, you know, we're, we're studying Texas in, in the first few years of school accountability. So this in the early 1990s, um, which you know, needs to be that early in order for us to look at these kids' outcomes in their mid-20s. And, of course, George W. Bush was governor of Texas during this period. And so... Um, the Texas system looks a lot like NCLB, and so I think our findings do have some relevance for other other systems. You know, for example, in Texas, they did something very similar to NCLB, where they um, mandated schools be tested not just in terms of you know reporting average pass rates across the school, but reporting pass rates for students of color, for poor students, um, multiple tests, and so it looks a lot like NCLB. So I think you know you want to look at our findings and think, okay, this does have some relevance to other states um, that have similar systems. Uh, or the federal system, and I think the policy implications. I mean, I can talk about this a little bit, a little bit more in a second. But the policy implications, I think, are um, on the one hand clear in the sense that accountability seemed to work for some kids and not for others, but unclear in the sense of you know, um, 
the overall impact was neither as large and positive as the um, proponents of accountability would would maybe hope for, nor was it neg as 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 you know wasn't negative, and so it also wasn't this kind of doomsday scenario that people tell about school accountability. So in that sense, it kind of I think is a win for gradual incrementalism rather than the idea that some policy like school accountability is going to be a silver bullet that you know solves all of our problems a win for gradual incrementalism that's right I'm, very that, maybe we'll call it the, the podcast that that's I'm, right you I, come here for the good stuff right <laughs> <laughs> president obama made a big announcement uh just very recently a few days ago about kind of getting rid of the the sort of testing culture and doing just good testing yeah. and limited testing how does this research fit into that sort of broader arc of high stakes testing in the country and limiting and scaling sure. it back so I think, you know, President Obama's remarks, uh, and I think many other people's remarks, capture this this moment of this idea in, in education policy where, okay, we've gone too far, the pendulum has swung too far towards testing. And I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, nobody wants, sort of by definition, you don't want too much testing. But I also think it's important to remember that um, there are a lot of things about school accountability that are really good that don't have to do, they don't necessarily need, they've been bundled together with the controversial elements of it, like the, the rewards and sanctions, the punishing teachers and schools for low test scores. But on the other hand, the thing that accountability is doing that I think is quite revolutionary that people don't talk about is the idea that we're going to give everybody the same test and we're going to measure performance in a way that um, can be standardized. And you don't need to have any sanctions or rewards for that. You could just say, look, we're going to, everybody's going to take the same test and we're going to report average test scores and let parents you know, access that information in a, in a way that makes sense to them and let people make more informed decisions. I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't have that. I mean, kid, we didn't take tests at the end of the year. We didn't have, and my, my parents and nobody else's parents had any idea what the best schools were other than through word of mouth. And you know, word of mouth you know, is going to privilege people who have access to more resources, more networks. And so it's not... So I guess what I'm saying is um, testing, quote unquote testing, has done a lot of good things. I think it's possible to have too much testing, um, but I, I don't think we are better off if we go in, back to a world where nobody has any idea what's going on. I think a lot of people always talk about the, the policy levels and this, this testing in the schools, and sometimes we often forget to talk about the, the kids involved, and, and uh -huh. this piece mentions the kids and, and their their sort of outcomes. Tell us what you hope this research does for for other research that does have a focus on outcomes of children. Sure. So I just want to give you a couple specific um, findings from the paper for folks who are listening for that. Um, then it relates to your question. So when I say the results were mixed, so what we found was um, if you were a, a, a child who was with a low test score, let's say they were looking at accountability in high school. So we're saying, okay, Students who, are at, who failed an eighth grade exam, when they were in a school that faced pressure to achieve an acceptable rating, so there were four ratings in Texas, exemplary, recognized, acceptable, which was most schools, and low performing. So that it's possible for schools to be in kind of right on the border between low performing and acceptable. So like in other words, if a few more kids don't pass, they might get this low performing rating. In schools that face that risk, the students um, who had previously failed an exam actually perform much better on the test so it looked like you know their test scores went up as a result of um, accountability pressure. And then we found that many years later, they had higher college graduation rates and higher earnings. So it was good for those kids, actually. On the other hand, you get these same types of students, students who previously failed an exam, but now put them in a school where that was on the border between getting an acceptable rating and a recognized rating. So the school you know, trying to get that gold star. 
in that case, what happened was those kids were actually harmed in the long run. And the reason they were harmed, we talk about in, in, the, in, the, in the paper, is that um, in, in Texas at this time, um, there was a rule that said that if a student was eligible for special education, their test score didn't count towards the school's rating. And so we find pretty strong evidence of strategic special education classification. So kids who weren't special ed in eighth grade suddenly becoming special ed in 10th grade, that was helping the schools increase their ratings. Um, and was harming the kids in the long run. So, so the moral of the, or the, the, the lesson we found, I don't say the moral, um, what we found is that accountability has, mixed impact, has these mixed impacts and it really matters how you design the system. Texas closed that loophole subsequently, but I think it underscores the fact that um, if you give a school, you know, if you give people, you put a lot of pressure on them and then you give them some kind of easy out that's kind of gaming the system, there's tremendous pressure to take that easy out. On the other hand, if you're in a school where there's lots of kids who are, have low, test, low prior test scores and lots of kids who need to get over that hump, you, know, you can't classify the whole school as eligible for special education. So then you kind of have to t do the hard work of reforming. Uh, and so I think the lesson is we ought to, you know, accountability succeeds when its mission is to bring up the schools where there are a lot of kids who are failing the test, you know, schools that really need help. Um, but it doesn't work when it's in the business of rating and ranking schools and giving out gold stars and telling us what the best school is and what the second best school is and what the third best school is. I think we, should, we ought to think about school accountability as establishing a minimum performance standard rather than picking winners. And I guess as a researcher going into this, was your hypothesis correct? Is, did you kind of have assumptions going into this and then you went through the research process and then you kind of came out expecting what you found or was there something very different? What were the biggest surprises in this? That's a, almost a philosophical question, Matt. I mean, I, I, I don't, so it's a question about what, you know, your expectations and how they map onto your research. I, I am not going to claim that I'm unbiased because I don't think anybody can claim that, but I'm going to claim that I try my best to be unbiased. And I didn't come into this, none of us did on the paper, came into this with any preconceived notion of what we were going to find. We were prepared to find anything um, and would have reported whatever we found. And I think that's really important. That's something that sets research apart from ad advocacy. Again, not that you're unbiased, that, that, that you try your hardest to be unbiased. And I've never wanted to be the type of researcher who, you know, when, when I, you know, when David Deming's working on a study or um, you know what the outcome's going to be already. And so, um, you know, I think, I think in terms of who, who likes the study, I think there's, in, there's a little something in it for everybody, uh, which is, you know, it didn't have to work out that way, but it did. Um, I think it's, it's pretty important to try your best not to have preconceived notions about how things are going to turn out, because as we all know who've, who've made the sausage, there are many ways to, to run the numbers, and it, it, it's, it can be quite tempting to try to, um, you know, rejigger things to get those magical statistical significant stars or to get that result you think is going to be popular or whatever, and we, we tried very hard not to do that. Great advice for education researchers and up-and-coming folks in academia. Uh, David, where can people read more about the article or learn more about your research and your work? Sure. So, I mean, the article is going to be um, on the Ednext website, um, I think, very shortly. And um, the actual paper, if you want to get into the nitty-gritty detail, you can find on my website. That's um, scholar.harvard.edu slash ddeming. Um, you just, or you can go to the um, Harvard Ed School website and find, find a link to my site as well. David, thanks for being on the EdCast. Thanks very much, Matt. It was a pleasure. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening.